1: The following podcast contains explicit language.
0: Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of September 4th, 2018. On this week's show, Dead Spend's Laura Wagner will join us to talk about what's behind Nike's move to make Colin Kaepernick the face of its latest Just Do It campaign. We'll also interview Mark Leibovich about his new book, Big Game, the NFL in Dangerous Times. And Dave Scheinen of the Washington Post will be here to discuss his story about a baseball player who missed out on making it to the majors in the most agonizing way possible. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. Uh, we're going to talk about in our bonus segment, we're both a little bit sleepy because we stayed up to watch uh, John Millman, both big uh, Millman Milman. Millman,
2: huge Millman fan.
0: Great moment in uh, tennis uh, for John Millman on uh, Monday night. Shall we move along to talking about uh, Nike?
2: I could talk about John Millman all day, but sure, we should probably go
0: Let's do it. forward. Let's do it. The famous Nike slogan. <laughs> Did you do that on it. purpose? That sounded accidental. Let's do it. <laughs> On Monday, Colin Kaepernick tweeted out a new Nike ad with an image of his face and the text, believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. At the bottom, there's the Nike swoosh and the slogan, just do it, of course. I found this surprising uh, when I saw it for a bunch of reasons, one of which is that Nike has paid an enormous sum, uh, probably more than a billion dollars, to have the right to make the NFL's uniforms. But also, there's just the fact that Nike is an enormous corporation And enormous corporations typically don't do things that are risky or that even seem risky. And making Colin Kaepernick your spokesperson seems risky, given that he's the leader of a social protest movement that a lot of people who I personally don't respect but who do have credit cards think is disrespectful to America, the troops. And I was going to come up with a third one, Stefan, but I'm just going to say the troops again. Joining us now to discuss is our sports business correspondent, Dead Spend's Laura Wagner. Hello, Laura.
3: Hello.
0: So, Laura, the Times' reporting on this on Monday indicated that this Kaepernick-Nike collaboration is not a one-off. He's going to have his own shoe. He'll make a lot of money so long as his merchandise sells well, and I figured that it probably will, and also that Nike is going to donate money to Kaepernick's Know Your Rights campaign. So, Nike is basically throwing itself in with Kaepernick. There's no kind of ifs, ands, or buts about that. Um, And so we can stipulate that they're doing this because they think it's good for business. But my question is, and I've kind of been pondering this since yesterday, and I'm not sure if I know what I think. Why do they think this is good for their business?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it can be good for their business and also good for Colin Kaepernick's cause. But the more important thing there is that it is going to be good for their business. If it wasn't going to make them money, I don't think they would do it. I think they probably focus... Grouped this, you know, a lot of times and come out thinking that the pros were better than the cons. I think a lot of this isn't really Nike being progressive. It's just sort of where society is going. Um, you know, like on LeBron's new HBO show, The Shop, which is quote unquote, unfiltered and talking about race and other other issues like is that because HBO really cares about talking about that stuff, or is it because that is what consumers want at, at this point and these conversations are happening more? So I think it's more of a reflection of society than, than Nike's business prerogatives.
2: I think it's a distinction without a difference, or at least it's becoming a distinction without a difference. I mean, the fact that Nike is willing to align itself with this polarizing figure indicates that it believes its customers align more with this polarizing figure than with his opponents. And I think that's a very important thing to recognize. And I think we should also not forget, it's easy to dismiss Nike as in this solely for Money And sure, that's obviously their goal. They're an apparel company. They want to sell lots of shit all around the world. But they also are associated with basketball, whose players are very progressive. LeBron James, who has been very outspoken and progressive about social causes and has put his money and hence Nike's money in places that will do society good. Uh, Serena Williams, who has also been outspoken about racial and and gender issues. They sponsor uh, the middle distance runner, Castor Semenya, who's been the target of efforts to ban her for her natural testosterone levels. So I'm not going to question LeBron's or Serena's social justice bona fides or Kaepernick's. Nike's going to advertise no matter what. If they're going to do it and they're going to take socially progressive positions, I, for one, am glad that they are doing that better than doing the opposite.
0: Yeah, the thing that's just fascinating to me is that unlike a lot of corporations that find themselves, you know, like the NFL and ESPN, in these kind of situations that aren't of their own making and they have to choose, are we going to, you know, stand behind Jamel Hill or are we going to tell – our personality is not to talk about politics. Like that's the choice that ESPN and their new president, Jimmy Pitaro, have made. They've said, you know, we're going to totally back away from anything that might be controversial because we don't want to, you know, make some like loud and angry segment of our um, customer base mad. And we also don't want to piss off the NFL. Like that's certainly a choice that a major corporation that's invested heavily in sports and progressive athletes has made recently. So Um, That could have been different. But the Nike thing is just like, they didn't have to choose. Nobody was telling them you have to stand with Colin Kaepernick or not. They kind of affirmatively have made this choice. And the thing that I find um, really different about this move, Laura, is that anything that Nike has done as far as like choosing a spokesperson in the last, like, you know, probably ever, it's like stuff is like controversial and like kind of a surface way. When you get down to it, it's always about like empowerment, right? Like with Serena Williams, is anybody going to like not get behind the message of like, wow, Serena Williams is like an inspirational figure for women and she's really great at tennis. I mean, that's kind of basically what it comes down to. But with Kaepernick, they're not only getting behind the athlete, they're getting specifically behind the social justice message.
3: Yeah. The timing of it is also interesting because his collusion case was just ruled that it could proceed setting up, you know, one of the most important (laughs) rulings in sports legal history, I I would imagine. And I, I don't know if that's connected, but it does. Like maybe because that has been legitimized in that way, they felt more comfortable launching the ad now. Um, They could be totally unrelated, but... um.
0: Well, I think it would have given them the option. I would imagine that this was planned to launch on this particular day at this particular time. But when that happened, they could have ejected from it, potentially. But I think the interesting thing is that regardless of the collusion case, Stefan, this was time to launch the opening week of the NFL NFL season. season.
2: Absolutely. Um, It puts
0: them in direct conflict with this with Cut, their partner, with and their typically
2: partner. when corporations have come into contact with specifically the NFL, the corporations have have backed down. The NFL is a huge and important part of of uh, ESPN's business. But go back fifteen years or uh, you know twenty years, when. ESPN aired the series Playmakers, the dramatic series about life in a fictitious NFL, and it backed away from it because the NFL protested that they didn't want to be showing domestic violence and drug use um, among players. So the fact that Nike is specifically taking on the NFL here, not directly, but clearly, is fascinating. And I think what Nike has done is made a corporate calculation, a business calculation. It is so ubiquitous. It is so big. It is so successful that the risk of brand damage is minimal. Nike doesn't just sell shit in the United States. It sells shit all around the world. And the rest of the world doesn't give a rat's ass about the NFL or Colin Kaepernick. Um, And I think this is what the NFL doesn't understand either. And this is sort of a second point. It could have taken a modestly progressive stance, When it came to Kaepernick, simply saying that it is within our players' rights to express their beliefs. They have said they are not protesting the national anthem or the flag or the troops, but they are protesting in favor of social justice. Roger Goodell wasn't going to kneel with the players, but all they had to do was give the players the agency to do that, and it probably would have been fine. Nike is now saying we stand with Kaepernick, and we stand with the idea that it is perfectly acceptable in our society to protest, and we believe that more people believe that than don't.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is this isn't the first time that Nike has sort of taken this stance either. Back when LeBron and a few other NBA players wore the "I Can't Breathe" T-shirts, Nike then allowed uh, you to customize the LeBron and I think the Kyrie shoes with the with "I Can't right. Breathe" on on shoes. So I think that um, what is like a little more of a cynical co-opting than what's happening with Kaepernick. But I mean, I, I still think it's pretty cynical.
2: I don't know. I mean, there's a damned if you do and a damned if you don't aspect here, Laura. I mean, Michael Jordan was attacked for not doing anything to confront Nike or to be political. And Kaepernick is going to get attacked for doing something and for working with Nike to be political. And the common denominators here are the name of the corporation and the color of the athlete's skin.
3: Well, I don't think Kaepernick is getting attacked. I think Nike is rightfully getting, you know, the side eye for being a huge brand that has historically, you know, they're facing their very own gender discrimination lawsuit right now. Um, Many, much of their labor is like based on sweatshop labor in in foreign countries, they're not perfect, and that they want points for being progressive about this, you know, I think they definitely deserve some narrowed eyes for that.
0: Yeah, I think that's totally fair. And I think that we're seeing some of the risk to Nike in the response from the right wing fever swamps, which is, So, like, immediate predictable whataboutism from the likes of Clay Travis is, you know, Kaepernick, why are you speaking out about Nike's sweatshop labor practices? Like, isn't that really uh, hypocritical of you? Or, Callan Kaepernick, what have you sacrificed? What about Pat Tillman? He sacrificed. Well, that one is just obviously, like, deeply stupid. but the (laughs) And disgusting. And disgusting. But it would get traction. The sweatshop labor thing, I think, is interesting. And the gender discrimination suit that Laura mentioned, which is, like, really recent occurrence. I think that if you want to be really cynical, that is where I would center my cynicism and Mm -hmm. also where I think the risk is to Nike, because we've seen how Donald Trump has gone after Jeff Bezos and this very uh, political way around Amazon's tax issues um, because of the criticism that uh, Bezos's Washington Post has made of Trump. And there are certainly a lot of issues that Nike is involved in that a pissed off president who sees a way to uh, get his base riled up can go after them for. Um, And some of those things might even be legitimate.
2: Yeah. And it'll be predictable. I mean, you know, that's what's coming next with this. And don't think that Nike didn't recognize that that was also part of the equation. I mean, maybe they view it as great. You know, we're ready for this fight and they are gearing up for it. But I think if we focus on Nike too much, we also lose sort of the, the, the important part, which is Kaepernick. I mean, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar once said that Michael Jordan was choosing commerce over conscience. Kaepernick is choosing both. He is exploiting the system that for decades has exploited athletes. And I think we need to be to recognize that. I think Colin Kaepernick is playing a very long game here, both with the way he has taken on the NFL for his personal collusion case and the way he is choosing to become a social justice figure.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think we're in like a different era of marketing now. Like Lou Moore, who we've had on the podcast before, tweeted an article um, the other day about how Muhammad Ali couldn't get any endorsement deals um, when he was kind of at the height of his divisiveness culturally in the 60s. And the fact that Kaepernick can get a deal and not only can get a deal, but is like become the face of this iconic company and brand – is really interesting, but my goal before we finish this segment is to convince Wagner that it's actually interesting that Nike is doing this, and I think that um, we can all like agree that it's probably cynical. But I just remain fascinated that because of all of this predictable backlash that they must have known was going to happen, because of everything we know in history about companies being averse to any kind of risk or criticism. The fact that they walked into this and made the choice, nobody told them to do it, makes this a fascinating decision process for me that this corporation would do this. Can you agree with that, Laura?
3: I I do agree with that. But I think being seen as socially progressive is like that is now sort of like a standard check it off the list thing for companies, like everybody is sort of going that way, because that's how society is evolving. And I do think that's interesting that that is where society, especially in the commercial realm is trending. But do I think it's particularly interesting, how they came to this decision? Like, were the executives Haggling over the morality of this. No, I I still don't think so.
0: (laughs) And Stefan, you were kind of gesturing at this before, but I think that what Nike has recognized here that the NFL hasn't is that black people, people of color, progressive white people are a huge market and are like actually fans of sports in the NFL. Um, And that there is just an enormous number of Kaepernick fans out in the world and the NFL's like failure to recognize that or I think it's sort of like th- the same thing about when uh you know whether it's a newspaper or a politician says the working class just like an image of a white guy in Iowa and so like that's just like a it's racist it's a failure of imagination I don't necessarily want to like put on pom poms and say like, hooray for Nike. They're so great. But I think it's smart and interesting that they seem to recognize what the NFL didn't.
2: Oh, I think what it also might simply indicate is that the Venn diagram of NFL fans and Nike customers doesn't overlap as
0: much as people think it does. Right. Laura Wagner uh, writes for Deadspin. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show, Laura.
3: Yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: terms apply. Before we get to our interview with Mark Leibovich, I want to let you know that in our bonus segment, Stefan and I will talk about the US Open. We'll talk about uh, Federer's loss to John Millman. We'll talk about Serena Williams. And that's pretty much it. Roger, Serena, what more could you want? If you want to hear that, you should join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus.
2: The National Football League season kicks off, as they say, on Thursday. That means another year of incredible athleticism that will be overshadowed by breathless hype, racist presidential bluster, brain and other injuries, and the latest travails of the membership, the mostly rich old white guys who own the league's 32 teams. Our friend Mark Leibovich of the New York Times spent the last four years or so following the membership and others, like the commissioner and his man crush, Tom Brady. And he's got a book to show for it. It's called Big Game, The NFL in Dangerous Times. Congrats on the book, Mark, and welcome back to the show.
1: Stefan, Josh, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. It's
2: great to have you, man. Uh, In the book, you call the NFL its own sprawling mess of a cause celeb, and no cause or sprawl or mess has been bigger or longer lasting than the one involving ex-quarterback Colin Kaepernick. Last week, an arbitrator allowed Kaepernick's grievance case against the NFL to proceed. He's arguing that the league and teams colluded to deny him a job because he knelt during the national anthem. This is obviously a big deal regardless, with potentially huge ramifications if Kaepernick should win. But the entire episode to me feels like a microcosm of the inept tone deaf. Let's pour some gasoline on this forest fire way that the NFL under Roger Goodell conducts business. What did you observe watching the Kaepernick saga unfold that explains where it is now?
1: Well, I mean, I think the real collusion here is that everyone got together and decided this was a good way for me to sell books. So that's the kind of collusion I could get behind, uh, given the timing of everything. But you're right. I mean, the NFL, over the last five or six years, has just been the king of the self-inflicted or self-exacerbated wound. And and that's sort of, in reporting this, I mean, I've been there for a lot of this. I mean, the Ray Rice thing is sort of where it started. Deflategate, um, a lot of the sort of ongoing you know, player discipline stuff like the Zeke Elliott thing last year. And Kaepernick has sort of been running throughout this. Uh, He started kneeling, I guess, almost, what, two seasons ago, right? And he in the preseason. And that was sort of a contained distraction. And then Trump, as he does, kind of belly flopped into the middle of a fairly contained pool. And it became the sprawling, massive, a cause celeb. Now, football has been polarizing for many, many years. I mean, it is not the united sort of family hearth of of the national sort of uh, spectacle that we had sort of assumed it was. And about 10 years ago, largely when Goodell took over, it became a very, very, you know, large sort of divisive institution and to where it's today probably the most divisive, you know, national sports brand we have.
0: The thing that um, I think you do a really good job drawing out and that is my favorite part of the book is just the time that you spend with the NFL owners and
1: the membership judge. The membership we must always Sorry. call them, and actually we must call them Mister. Always Mister.
0: But they're seen certainly in the context of the Kaepernick collusion case. They're seen as this block. I think certainly fans see them as this block, but they're distinct characters and just amazing profile subjects. Um, Jerry Jones, I think, is the one that I want uh, to hear you talk about. Can, can you just explain like how Jerry Jones is perceived within the membership? That's that's where I want you to start.
1: Sure. Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, he has sort of been uh, called over the years, even before Donald Trump was in politics, the Donald Trump of the NFL. And, you know, like Donald Trump, he is not the most disciplined person in the world, he is not above you know pretty serious self inflicted wounds, and he's not always the most diplomatic person in the world. And I spent a fair amount of time with him, probably uh, too much, certainly for the Dallas Cowboys bus is not for the faint of um, heart or liver. Jerry Jones likes to drink his Johnny Walker Blue, and and look, he is just in the middle of everything. He's now taken a very hard line, saying members of the Dallas Cowboys must stand toe on the line for the National Anthem. And Trump has been invoking him, praising him, and the two of them are are very much in lockstep, it would seem.
2: Mark, you buried the lead there because you weren't just on the bus. You you passed passed out 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 on the the bus. bus. Yeah, Yeah. I'm not proud of that. Yeah,
1: yeah. 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 I buried the whole chapter. But
2: not before before Jerry Jones talked about masturbating
1: in his shoes. He did. It is all true. Yeah, no, it was – this is one of those things where – we were sitting on the bus about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. There was a Dallas Cowboys you know, golf tournament going on, just like any other interview. And he was sipping tea and complaining of a sore throat or like a cough or something like that. After about maybe 20 minutes, he said, you know, do you want a shot of scotch? And I'm like, well, sure. I'm on the Dallas Cowboys bus. You know, when, when you're in Orlando, you go to Disney World. When you're on the Dallas Cowboys bus, you accept Jerry Jones's offer of a shot of scotch in the middle of the day. Um, by shot, he meant... Probably a twenty-four ounce souvenir cup, like of the Dallas Cowboys, filled with ice, and then Johnny Walker Blue from the private stash he has in his refrigerator on the bus. They kept refilling it, and three, four hours later, I, I was probably not operating terribly smoothly. Uh, my tape recorder was, so I was. This was all recorded for posterity. And, um, you know, Jerry just like – we had a great four-hour interview in which at some point we deteriorated, you know, maybe about an hour in. And uh, he was making the point that it's very important to have fun. And he was a shoe salesman when he was starting out in business. He said, I have sold shoes. And he could have left it there. I would have known what he was talking about. But he felt the need to say, I have masturbated into my shoes. At which point I (laughs) – sort of, I think I said something like, you know, we've all been there, sir. i was trying to, reass- <laughs> to reassure him. But then in the, in the book, I made a point of, you know, issuing the disclaimer that I have not ever done that. And mm-hmm. I don't, um, well, anyway, that's just, I think it was yeah. important from a pure journalistic transparency standpoint. <laughs> anyway, I also said that um, I guarantee you Robert Kraft is not sitting on a bus in Foxborough, Mass, talking to some reporter about masturbating into his shoes. Uh, at which point, the person he was with, Rich Dalrymple, uh, made a point that Robert the Kraft— The PR day, guy very, for the Cowboys. PR guy for the Cowboys made a point that Robert Kraft has a very attractive, much younger girlfriend. And Jerry—and he said it in somewhat cruder terms, but, but Jerry then said, yeah, he belongs in the Hall of Fame for that. Put that man in the Hall of Fame. At that point, we were deteriorating, but one of the many pearls of wisdom from Jerry Jones.
2: That scene and many others in the book, Mark, reflect— what might be surprising to some people, but just how
0: Which is insecure... that old rich people objectify women, I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> not yeah,
2: that stunning, part, right Not that yeah. part uh, but just how fragile and insecure these people are. No that question.
0: They're just insecure doofuses. The funniest thing to me was him standing up in one of these rooms and saying he was the longest tenured owner. Longest
1: which is, tenured, right. not which true. is not true. Not true. <laughs> he, but he said, I'm the ranking owner in the room. And it was not true at all. <laughs> and this created great hackles with the, um, the Hunt family, the Mara family, the, the Rooney family. I mean, because
2: right, unless Jerry Jones bought the Cowboys in 1925 and didn't tell yes. anybody, he is not yeah, the well, longest you know, ranking math, owner.
1: It was like 1989, right? Or something like that. And I, I do think and you guys probably agree with me i think you probably would agree with me nfl owners are one of the great untold stories of sports right For sure mean, and I, mm-hmm. I mean if you think about it they're probably the most powerful entertainment entity in their various markets i mean if you're the jets of the giants um you know owner you're, you're obviously in a different market or la or something but no these are hugely powerful entertainment executives right and you know, you go across the board. this is not an elite group of leaders or industrialists, no matter how they say no. themselves that no. you would want you know running an extremely powerful cultural and entertainment entity. nor would I think you want Roger Goodell to be the CEO of said company, but this is effectively the board and yeah to me, the most fascinating part and, and i don 't know if this comes through or not in the book, but I would hope it does is the amazing sort of subculture of incredibly rich. Men And the carnival they operate in and the clubbishness they operate in and the power they have to sort of affect, you know, the way the league is run and and really our our lives and our the way we partake of football.
2: You know, what surprised me a little bit over the last two decades is how the membership, which has always had its morons You're rolling and its with the sons. Is that the issues have shifted? They've become these cultural arbiters, and they have, they have been dragged into or willingly dived into these controversies. Where when I was covering the membership for the Wall Street Journal, the issue was large market teams versus small market teams, and how do we share revenue? Those right. issues don't even get written about anymore.
1: You know, one of the most telling and like amazing, to even to this day, to my that I'm about to say it is just stunning to me. There's a scene in the book where. Ken Belson and I got a tape of a secret meeting between the commissioner and a bunch of players and a bunch of owners right at the height of the anthem crisis last October, and one of the players, as soon as Goodell said that this is very private and sensitive, was nice enough to you know tape it and, and share it with Ken and I. So we uh, heard this, and one of the things we we heard that just was striking to me was Stephen Ross, the owner of the Miami Dolphins, talked about how the civil rights movement was very important to him. And he proposed that the NFL owners and players have a march on Washington to show how unified they are. Now, can you imagine if a group of NFL owners and players conducted a march on Washington, like what that would look like? Do you think like people would go to the barricades for that? I mean, it was a bizarre moment, but mostly just to hear how owners talk And the degree to which Donald Trump is in all of their heads and, you know, how do we make sure he doesn't go off again? And um, it was a kind of a depressing window into how that business operates.
0: So the members, if if I'm playing along with you guys with this terminology, Mm -hmm. if, uh, you know, they're pretty much exclusively older white men. As a white man writing this book at a time when, you know, race is really the number one issue in the NFL – did you feel like the owners kind of saw you as one of them and that they could confide in you like their thoughts and think that you would understand? Did you get that that sense?
1: It's a great question. I don't know. I mean, I, I do think one of the st- really stunning things to me in sort of jumping into this world, especially coming from politics, so you know, I was an outsider to this, I didn't know these people. Was the degree of deference that they all expected to have. There was a lot of you'll take care of me, right? Or you know, there there was—I wouldn't say there was a nudge, nudge, wink, wink dynamic—but there was definitely a sense for, of people who are taken care of, certainly within their league and within their organizations, within their communities, but also in their local media. I mean, I think NFL teams, especially the way coaches operate and media relations operate um, in the NFL you are very much at the mercy of you know what kind of information the team is going to give you if you're a beat guy on the lower leg injury that Devin McCordy has and whether he's going to be questionable or probable and and no i don't know i don't know why they opened up to me i think many of them are not as sa- savvy as they think and a lot of them are very easily thrown into complacency by the fact that they've been favored and entitled for a long time by the by the world they operate in you're also a charming guy mark so there's that well i don't want to say that cuz it sounds <laughs> conceited but I mean, I will say, look, you know, it's interesting, though, Stefan, I, I mean, as someone who's been around a lot of players because for your books, your excellent books, I am very impressed with players. The group of players is the entity I actually found the most I had the most respect for more so than the owners, more so than the league office people, uh, more so than coaches, uh, certainly a lot more than like the hangers on or a lot of the media. I just thought that 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 to me is where sort of in so much as there is honor in football. It's it's I saw I seem to sense more of it from the player level.
2: At one point in the book, Mark, you write uh, that there's no common ground between Jerry Jones's vision of the football field as a respite and Kaepernick's vision of it as a platform. And I think what the owners and Roger Goodell fail to understand is that there's no reason that the NFL can't be both. And I think they do that at their own peril. Um, we haven't talked about Goodell much. And you got to spend a fair amount of time with the commissioner, whom you depict as sort of a, a, a Peter Principle writ large. Uh, He's a politician. (laughs) He's kind of a milquetoast Northern Republican, or at least that's the impression we get. His father was a milquetoast Northern Republican senator. And that's what the league kind of strives to be, sort of socially conservative, but not extremist, hawkish when it needs to be, bland and ultimately ineffectual. It doesn't want to be at the center of these controversies. And yet, Goodell has dragged them there. What do you think it is about Goodell's personality? What did you discover about him in your interactions that sort of reflect the NFL as it is today?
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, he is a politician. He's a politician's son and really probably more than any other sports commissioner. His job is, is political in the same way that the president of a trade association's job is political or sort of a Senate majority leader's job would be political. You have to take care of a constituency a fairly small constituency, above all else. Yeah, and the right membership do, in this case. The he he in works this case. at their. Pleasure. He works at the pleasure of the thirty-two, largely almost entirely men that sort of tell him that he can continue to be their commissioner, give him two hundred million dollar deals over five years, and. Yeah. I mean, he is completely serving at their pleasure. He has a spreadsheet on his desk in which if three weeks had passed before the last time he had spoken to Martha Firestone Ford, the matriarch of the Detroit Lions, he needs to get on the phone and make sure that Mrs. Ford has what she needs. He knows what she's concerned about. I mean, it's about touching bases and keeping the membership happy. And ultimately, the membership you know, that's what they're all fragile. They all have special interests and, you know, he's very, very good at catering to them and they reward him with their own loyalty. So it is an odd dynamic though, because they do own the team, but then he can also, you know, take away their draft picks and find them and suspend them and, you know, ruin their reputations. And it's a bizarre dynamic, but that's like one skill he has, which is keeping these, you know, largely older men happy.
0: Do you feel like you got any sense of Goodell's, <laughs> I'm going to say, inner life? That might be uh, the wrong term for it. But I do kind of imagine, I like to mm-hmm. imagine that there's like something going on there where he doesn't necessarily all the way buy in with the stuff that he's doing. Maybe that's just like fan fiction or, on my or, part.
1: Or, is that just, or does his wife serve that role? First of all, two things I learned about Goodell that I, I was surprised by. One – When he goes off the record, he can play ball. I mean, he's like, all of a sudden, like, the light goes off and, you know, if you sort of mutually agree that I'm not really interviewing him anymore, you realize, I mean, he's like, he's an operator. I mean, he will tell you things. He kind of talks like a human being. So... There is someone who, you know, over several decades has dealt with the press, you know, in a sort of offline basis because he's been at the league for 30 plus years. I, I do think he's somewhat obsessed with his dad. I mean, not to like slap a psychoanalysis on him, but look, his father was, yes, a milquetoast Northern Republican, but he took a very, very courageous stand against the Vietnam War. I mean, he... Was a very very you know important voice and and Nixon backed him at first but then as soon as Charles Goodell came out against the war Nixon and Agnew and the entire RNC just really turned you know pretty quickly against him he went up losing his reelection and Roger was you know at his side throughout that whole thing I mean he was like eight or nine used to campaign with his dad all the time totally worshipped him and saw what this did so he has always had and and to this day Roger Goodell keeps the Vietnam disengagement Act. That his father co-authored in the Senate on his wall, so he is haunted sort of by someone who stood by his principles, did the right thing, and wasn't necessarily rewarded for it. Now, Roger Goodell, you could argue, had kind of handled the anthem thing last year. Uh, he wrote it out. I mean, there was not an elegant solution to that. You knew Trump was going to pipe up then, and you knew he was going to pipe up again. But but largely by you know week four, week five, the public had sort of reverted back to football. And, the, you know, the numbers were pretty much close to where they were the year before by the end of the year. Good playoffs, good Super Bowl. And then for some bizarre reason in May, he just flipped. You know, Him and a group of owners fairly hastily said, OK, by the way, if you want to protest, stay in the locker room, and that's a new policy. Uh, he pissed off the players, pissed off a lot of fans, ignited Trump all over again. Many of the owners had no idea this was coming. The league office probably within two days knew this was a disaster. And then you wound up, you know, them sort of reversing themselves a few weeks or a couple of months later to where now we have a couple of days till the season starts. It's unresolved. There's no way it's going to be resolved. And you have people like Donald Trump and Nike sort of jumping into the void. So that's sort of a classic example of Goodell maybe wanting to do the right thing, maybe erring on the side of doing the right thing at first and getting some credit for it. And then for whatever reason, just reversing himself and creating, you know, where we, where it is today, which is really a mess. It's this reluctance to offend anybody. Uh the NFL is the only institution that refused
2: historically to enable Donald Trump. And I mean like banks and municipalities and and a whole litany of 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 agencies in America that allowed this asshole to, to rise to, to the prominence. Um but now You
0: mean not allowing him to buy a team?
2: Correct. Um, not letting him into this club. They recognized who he was from the very beginning, from the 1980s when he was in the United States Football League, the USFL. Now, in typical Trump retributive fashion, he's taken the NFL hostage. He has put it at the center of this culture war. What can the NFL do at this point? They're stuck with him for another two and a half years. And no matter what coaches say about the death of football leading to the end of America And no matter how much they fight against the march of science, against this already obvious conclusion that the nature of football is deathly, what can the NFL do to counter not just Trump, but these other trends that – are, you know, s- signal decline, if not demise of this sport. And I don't know how much that falls on Roger Goodell and how much that's going to fall on a new generation of owners that are a little more progressive, like Jeffrey Lurie in Philadelphia, to sort of come to their senses and be part of, of an American
1: mainstream. I think the single biggest existential problem I see just in sort of looking at this organization as an outsider is that there is no one really in a position to really think like 20 years out. I mean, The the owners are all so old and so self-interested, and many of them just not that bright or, or good in business to begin with, so that they just don't think around corners. And then they hire someone like Roger Goodell, who, like them, does tend to have a really strong bias for the familiar, for the comfortable, for the status quo, which, if you're in the NFL, is a very, very comfortable thing because they are printing money. I do think, though, that independent of Trump, independent of Colin Kaepernick, independent of concussions or anything, you have seen a culture war within football mimicking a culture war that we've seen in politics, which is kind of like a, a rust belt, you know, coastal divide. I mean, the the, the Trump belt and the football belt are, are pretty closely correlated, whether it's Alabama or Pennsylvania or you know parts of Ohio and Michigan that voted for him. Trump had a line before Kaepernick. Like I think this was the Cincinnati-Pittsburgh playoff game in early 2016. No, the Vontaze Perfect game. The Vontaze Perfect game. It was a wild card round playoff and there was personal fouls, concussions. Pac-Man Jones just absolutely leveled Antonio Brown. Ben Rothsberger got hurt. The fans in Cincinnati were throwing things on the field. And so suspensions were handed down pretty swiftly. A lot of people at the league office were saying that was a disgrace. You know, Phil Simms himself said that was a disgrace. Trump, within, within a few days of that, did a campaign event in Nevada, Reno. And he said, you know, I was watching that game the other night. Remember, there used to be these beautiful, violent hits in football, but now all you see is penalty flags. And I'll tell you something. Football has gone soft just like America has gone soft. That was essentially him saying football was much better when America, the mythic America, was great, and we're going to make it great again. It was a pretty you know, compelling metaphor, I thought, at that moment. And then Colin Kaepernick came along.
2: We didn't get to the fact that you're a total Patriots homer and that Tom Brady actually <laughs> did deflate footballs, even if the investigation oh, and punishment were out of control. Yeah. Um, we're going to save that for, for the people to That'll read. That'll be the next in book. The book. There's yes. an
0: excerpt on Slate of Mark's quest to interview Tom Brady. So people should check that out. The
2: book is excellent. It's called Big Game, The NFL in Dangerous Times. Go buy it. Mark Levovich, we love you. Thanks for coming on
1: the show. <laughs> Thanks, guys.
0: Baseball reference lists 1,019 hitters and 548 pitchers that only played one game in the major leagues. One of them I picked at random is Dorsey Riddlemoser, who gave up four runs and two innings for the Washington Senators in 1899. You don't know him, Stephen? Of course I do. Of course you do. That's not great a great stat line, but Dorsey Riddlemoser's descendants can take pride in that one appearance because making it to the majors is a very difficult thing to do. Last week in the Washington Post, Dave Shineen wrote about a pitcher named Brian Mazzone, who made it pretty much as far as you can get without ever becoming a major league baseball player. Dave is with us in our DC studio now. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. So when your story begins, Dave, Brian Mazzone, he's 30 years old. He's been in the minors for eight years. It's September 5th, 2006. He finally gets a shot to pitch in the big uh, big league game for the Philadelphia Phillies, thing he's been working towards his whole life. So tell us what happened on September 5th.
4: Well, on September 5th, 2006, what happened uh, was it rained. And it <laughs> rained buckets, and it rained all day and all night. And Brian Mazzone's shot at the big leagues was rained out. And the fascinating part of the story is kind of what happened leading up to that and then what happened after that. Because that wound up being his only shot at the big leagues. And the rest of his career and then the rest of his life, uh, he's had to deal with uh, knowing that his major league shot got rained out and that was it.
2: Let's talk about the leading up to that moment. Mm -hmm. And when you're 30 and you've been in the minors for as long as this guy was in the minors, these guys understand that there is a growing by the day chance that I am not going to achieve this dream that I Have been working towards since I was a little kid. Right. So to get called up at that point Mm -hmm. for him was tears. Right. Absolutely. And that's the case with a lot of players. Mm -hmm. But at his age to make it and get that call is a remarkable thing.
4: Yeah. I mean, there's actually two sides of that. The first side is that he should have never been in that position given his talent ability. He was a lefty who threw 85 to 88, uh, was never considered the best player on his team pretty much ever in his life. He, high school, he was undrafted. College, he was undrafted. He started at the absolute lowest rung possible of minor league baseball, which is independent ball somewhere in Utah. And he almost got cut from that team in spring training because he was not that good. But the manager told him, look, we're going to keep you because nobody here has worked the way you have. So he he basically got on, like, on, uh, you know, a, a fluke. And so from there, he worked his way all the way up. Now, the other side of it is that he deserved that shot, like, I mean, he was, I want to say, 13-3 and three with a two ERA that year in AAA. And AAA, as you know, is borderline big leaguers. I mean, those guys are, are right on the cusp. These are professional hitters that he's getting out. So he deserved that shot. So there's two sides of that coin. And, and I guess maybe when you put the two together is why it was so painful.
0: So he told you in the piece a quote that really stood out for me was, I had thought that everything I'd done had been validated Mm -hmm. all those hours, all that time away from home, the sweat, the blood, the tears, it was validated to myself, to my wife and kids. And he was in this position, which I think you just articulated really well of having really good results without necessarily having the talent for it. And there's the cliche of nobody believed in me. And Mm -hmm. a lot of athletes who say that it's not true, but they convince themselves it's true. But with this guy, it is really true that nobody believed in him and for him, that's why it must have hurt more It's that this was the thing he needed to do to prove to himself, to his
4: family, to everyone out there that he was legit. Yeah, you know, he talked at, l- at length and, and a lot of this stuff, I just didn't have room to put in the story. But, you know, his his dad, he was so close to his dad, his dad, you know. Played catch with him as a kid and taught him how to hit and uh, was his coach in Little League and, and, and took him, you know, at 5 a.m. to the travel ball. It, it just all these things that, you know, he wanted this for his dad as much as he wanted it for himself. But when you talk about, you know, his record and, and how nobody believed in him, I mean, he mm-hmm. was shocked when he got the call. I mean, he, he, he had almost mentally checked out and thought, my, right, my time is gone. And when he got that phone call from his manager uh, while he's at dinner at a PF Chang's in Rock Chester, New York. The first thing that goes through his, his mind is not I'm getting called to the big leagues. He's thinking, what you know is, am I getting pushed back in the rotation? Am I getting moved up because of something? And when they told him he's getting called to the big leagues, he he flipped out and he said he was bawling. And he he has to walk back through the restaurant with tears streaming down his face to go tell his wife. Uh, I mean, the emotion that runs through the story is, I mean, it it had me practically in tears listening to it.
2: And I put myself in thanks to your good writing, Dave. Thank you. That scene, mm-hmm. the day in the clubhouse in Philadelphia. And I have this image of this absolutely lonely man <laughs> holding his uniform, putting it on, buttoning it up. Right. Walking out to the dugout and just standing there watching this deluge. Right. And I think some athletes might have thought, oh, it's raining today. I'm sure they'll call me back. They called me up once. They're going to give me another shot. But it almost felt like he knew, like, this could have been – this could be the only chance I get.
4: In in baseball, nobody talks to that day's starting pitcher. So everybody left him alone. So so it was even lonelier than you might imagine. And also, you know – he told me he thought he was going to get another shot. I think it's more of being deserving of a shot than actually thinking you're going to get it because when he walked out of there, he 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 sort of knew that his time had come and gone. And, and I think that's why you saw him in that scene standing at the window uh, of his hotel room watching the rain and, and just sort of knowing that that was it. So there's
0: a number of other players who've had incredibly sad stories of almost making it or making it for one game. Um, I wanted to mention a couple of them, a few that you mentioned in your piece. First is Larry Yount. And it's not a contest, Dave, but I actually think this is the saddest one. (laughs) Um, He is warming up in the bullpen. He's also Robin Yount's
4: brother right right, right. robbing you out hall of famer, hall of famer. Like, which maybe makes it harder though in a way <laughs> yeah. that you're having to compete with that right legacy. right
2: i mean his brother who was in the major leagues at starting at age 19
0: mm-hmm. right you can't argue that you're not uh you don't have the genetics to make it to the majors <laughs> so he's warming up in the bullpen hurts his arm in the bullpen comes out to do his warm-up for his first start and can't go and gets pulled out of the game now as you write in your piece for Whatever arcane baseball rules reason, that's considered to be an appearance because he was the announced mm-hmm. starting pitcher. We all know that guy didn't actually play, right, right. play in a big league game. So that's number one. I'm just going to run through these and then at the end we'll decide uh-huh. which of these is actually the worst. The saddest. <laughs> that's number one is Larry Yount. Number two is John pechorek He played for the Colt 45s in Houston back in the early 60s, played in the last game of the season, went three for three with two walks. One of the only players in Major League history to bat 1,000 for his career. Had a bad spring training, then got hurt, never made it back up again. So this guy, he's thinking... I'm the greatest player ever. I obviously have the ability to do this. And I just like, I had one moment where I saw what could have been and then got it totally ripped away from me. Uh, So that's number two. Right. The number three is Adam Greenberg, the Cubs player, um, 2005- against the Marlins, first at bat. This guy is considered actually a good prospect, could have had a long career, gets hit in the head yeah. on in the first at bat he ever had. He later gets like kind of a pity at bat with the Marlins. Right. They like bring him back because it's a good story about his perseverance and he actually comes back. But his clearly his entire career gets derailed by getting hit in the head. So who would you uh. least rather be? <laughs> I'll ask both <laughs> of you guys. Brian Mazzone, Larry Yount, John Pachorek, or Adam Greenberg. Stefan.
2: Well, I think I would least like to be Adam Greenberg because it get, it hurts to get hit in the face with a baseball thrown 90 yeah, miles an hour.
0: Health repercussions are yeah. going to in the head. Yeah, yeah. He's also now a politician, Yeah, which isn't mm. fun.
2: Um, so I think that to me is the most tragic story. I mean, the other ones are, look, injuries are a part of sports. This does happen. Um, for poignancy, Larry Yount, definitely, to be out there standing on the mound, getting ready to play, to pitch and something to go wrong in your body for this motion that you have repeated thousands and thousands of times in your life. And then at the absolute pinnacle, the highest point of your career, something tweaks in your body and doesn't allow you to, Hmm. to experience it.
4: I tell you what, uh, I'm still going to go with my guy because I just think— All right, th- got to do long interviews with all these people. Right, then, then right, right. right, There's a book you know, here, I think, uh, Dave. Honestly, you know, I mean, there's so many people have come out of the woodwork since this story. A friend of mine from the Seattle Times, uh, Larry Stone, wrote a story a few years ago about a Mariners guy who got called up at the end of the season, got three at-bats, went strikeout, double play, triple play. <laughs> oh, my God. In his one game, and then that Let's, was it. Add him so to he the made lift. six out. <laughs> in, in three at-bats in his only big league game, and That's then that awesome. was the end for him. I also have come to find out, uh, I got an email from a researcher at Sabre, the Society uh-huh. of American Baseball Research, the go-to Bible on this stuff. They have a, a list of over 200 players in Mazone's situation of being called to the big leagues but not appearing in a game. And wow. I guess Larry Yount would qualify in there as well, despite his being in the record. There's 200-something, and they sort of call them phantom big leaguers. Yeah. There's a whole uh, – I don't know. There's people who like could be a research this. So it's, it's, it is it's a really cool book possibility.
0: So two final things for me. One, well, what's your choice? Oh, my choice? I think Yount. Yeah, I mean I said it before. Yeah. It's just and, – and I think what that gets at and and what your piece, like kind of one of the larger points for me is that – In sports and in life, there's a sense that the final step is kind of inevitable. And like you know, when you see on the bottom line that the starting pitchers for tonight are, you know, Noah Syndergaard and Max Scherzer, you expect those guys to take the mound. But like. You have to make it through the day. (laughs) A certain amount of things have to happen for things that we don't even think about to happen. And that's true with like, you know, to get to the studio today. That's true with anything that things can happen. And there are certain people where with that certain thing that's typically inevitable doesn't happen on that day, that that can be life-changing. Wow, that is, that
2: is heavy, Josh. Mm-hmm.
0: I know, it Seriously. is heavy, but it's like
4: that's kind of the space that this piece is operating in, man. <laughs> yeah, and you know who knows what, what goes on in people's personal lives and, and they're showing up to the ballpark with whatever is going on in their lives that could be affecting them to the point of – Not even being able to go, you know, and we don't know that maybe the team makes up an injury or something when somebody stuff happens. Believe me, I've covered the game a long time and, you know, personal lives get messy and you never know if that day is going to be given to you. The thing
2: that I always come back to with this is every baseball player that didn't make it has a story. Mm -hmm. Very few of them are so self-aware as to say, I, you know, I just didn't have the talent and I probably wasn't going to get there. A lot of them, especially the ones that get up to AA or AAA or do well in an independent league and don't get a chance to get back into organized baseball, feel like something went wrong, that I was denied this opportunity. What Mazone reflects is the utter, you know, he is the archetype for this sadness that every athlete who comes close and doesn't get there feels.
4: And it's really, I mean, this could only happen in baseball, though, right? I mean, you don't see NBA players or NFL players. I mean, every once in a while, a Kurt Warner comes out of nowhere, seemingly, but it's very rare for somebody to toil uh, in the margins for eight or nine years like this guy did in baseball. The only thing that really, I think, comes close is maybe golf with the the mini tours and the guys grinding and living out of their cars for 10 years and finally get their PGA Tour car, but nothing else. It, it, this could only happen in baseball. And let me also say that I mean, this story would not be possible today because Mazone would never be in affiliated baseball today because the obsession with velocity, as, as, as big as it was in 2006 when he was break, trying to break in the majors, it's tenfold now. And this guy with an 85, 87-mile-hour fastball never gets a look in baseball today.
0: The story is headlined, A Lifelong Dream Washed Away, for reasons that I think are obvious if you've been listening to this conversation. Uh, Dave Scheinen wrote it. We'll link to it on our show page. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure.
2: Even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: Now it is time for Afterballs. And as previously noted, this is the 30th anniversary of the Just Do It slogan. The guy in the first ever Nike Just Do It commercial was a runner named Walt Stack. But at the time was 80 years old and ran 17 miles every morning, which is impressive, but not as impressive as being 17 years old and running 80 miles every morning. I mean, just being real with you, Stefan. Um, Stack was known more for endurance than speed. Uh, he had the motto, start slow and taper off, which I think would actually be better than just do it. I think that speaks to um, a bigger audience if we're talking about giving Nike advice on on marketing. So, Stefan, let's honor Walt Stack with Afterballs named after Walt Stack. What is your Walt Stack?
2: Josh, my mother died last week, as you know. Her name was Anita. She was 92 years old, and her last decade was destroyed by dementia. She wasn't much of a sports mom because sports moms didn't really exist in the 1970s. She came to the occasional Little League game and she was in the stands. She might have been the only parent in the stands when I scored for the Pelham Memorial High School JV soccer team in the 10th grade. And I remember looking up to make sure she saw it and was glad that she was there. And she did drive to more than a few 6 a.m. high school hockey practices My mom wasn't much of a sports fan either. She witnessed and indulged my own infatuations, my card collections, my nightly watching of the Yankees, Knicks, Rangers, whatever else was on, my front yard stoop ball and backyard wiffle ball games where I pitched like Fritz Peterson and batted like Bobby Mercer, my imagined Giants triumphs, Fran Tarkenton, me, throwing the game-winning touchdown pass to Bob Tucker, also me. NFL Films soundtrack playing in my head. She bought me equipment for every game and season. I bounced my red, white, and blue ABA basketball until the bladder popped through the seams. And my mom enabled my fandom. She let me ride the subway to Yankee Stadium. And this is kind of crazy. She drove my friends and me to Giants Stadium to watch Pele and the Cosmos, dropping us off in the parking lot and returning three hours later to pick us up. She was a child of the Depression, and she graduated from high school during World War II, almost 30 years before Title IX. She didn't play catch with me or tennis on the court across the street with me or bike or run or swim, so I never imagined her as an athlete. That changed a little bit when she joined a bowling league. She had her own ball and shoes, and I remember being impressed with her 125 average one season. She did this little hop after the first step down the lane. It was balletic. I liked it. And then I don't remember when exactly she told me that she played basketball in high school and she had the receipts, a varsity letter and a photograph of the 1942, 43 Ridley Park, P.A. girls varsity. It's a fantastic picture. Seven girls are lined up in height order. They're angled to the left, each girl's right hand resting on the elbow of her neighbor, except for the tallest player who's holding a ball. Their uniforms are dark one-piece dresses, probably maroon, the school color, well above the knee, over white-collared shirts. They wear pointy white gym shoes and white ankle socks. They're bookended by their coaches, both of whom are women. My mom, then 17, is the third shortest on the team, or the fifth tallest. Her right knee is bent slightly, and she's smiling for the camera. She told me that she was a forward, which I thought was weird because she wasn't tall. But I realized just yesterday that forward meant something different then than what it does now. In all likelihood, the Ridley Park girls played six-on-six basketball, the version of the sport that girls played, which endured in some states into the 1990s. Three forwards had to stay in the front court and three guards had to stay in the back court. Players were allowed two dribbles before they had to pass or shoot. Rather than the housewife I knew growing up or the ravaged victim of Alzheimer's of her final years, I like to imagine Anita on the court for old Ridley High, draining a two-handed set shot from the corner or making a sweet bounce pass to a cutting teammate. I like to think I'm a decent athlete because she was too, and that she could have been even better if the times had allowed it. I framed the black and white picture of my mom, the baller, It's hanging up along with a black and white picture of my 1977 senior league baseball team, Legion, and a black and white photo of my daughter's rec soccer team, The Power, from 2012. Three sports, three generations. I don't believe there's a heaven, but if there is, I hope mom is taking off from the foul line and throwing
0: down a tomahawk dunk. (laughs) That's not how I was expecting that to end. That was great. Thank you. How Uh, are you
2: expecting it to end?
0: I was expecting her to kind of do like a reverse jam where you kind of bring <laughs> it down to your knees and then cock it back over your head. Like I was imagining a Dominique – more of a Dominique, Dominique Wilkins yeah, Wilkins yeah, mom Wilkins, than yeah. an MJ mom. Yeah. It's like some moms are Neeks and some are MJs. I think she's more of a Dr. J mom <laughs> is what I was thinking because she had – Great mom. She had in the 70s some good hair. <laughs> That's awesome. Josh, what's your waltz stack? So college football opening weekend, sort of a lot of – new developments. It seems like Alabama actually might be good this year, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. Like, I don't know. They're new out of nowhere. Really out of nowhere. It's like really good to see them kind of succeeding and and overcoming their historical- uh, Adversity. Adversity. Troubles. Yes. But the thing that I really noticed on the first weekend, we talked about this last year, but it's worth revisiting, is like the turnover props have gone to another level. So when we had this conversation, we did a segment with Pesca, Last year, it was pegged to the University of uh, Miami turnover chain. Um, this like really blinged out necklace that they put on uh, after they force a turnover. There were other ones that we mentioned. Do you remember this conversation where there was like one small school that had, like a piece of wood mm-hmm. that they were using to celebrate turnovers? But this year, there's Boise State has a uh, turnover throne. <laughs> Did you see that? No. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the semiotics of turnover objects. And I feel like there's just been so much kind of like following and like, oh, it's like a cool thing. So we're just going to do what this other school is doing. I think the turnover chain obviously is cool. It's a good idea. The like different belts the teams have that are like the wrestling belt. Alabama's had one. Other schools have had one. I think those are cool. That like makes sense as an object. I think the turnover throne, even though it's like late in the like celebration object scandal, I do feel like it's like a really smart move. Like I didn't think that there were necessarily any more places to go with the turnover objects. But I think the throne, it like exalts the player. Wait, wait, wait. I'm going to stop you and
2: ask you to describe the turnover throne. How big is the turnover throne? What does it look like, velvet, purple? How illegal right, is it? I'm going to
0: show it to you on my computer. It's like not actually that great. It's like a chair. It's a turnover it looks like, chair. It's a turnover <laughs> chair. Like I think that <laughs> Boise, maybe as the season goes on, there can add more objects to it. Yeah. But it's basically like, with apologies to the great uh, Australian band of my youth, it is a silver chair. And it's like kind of got some nice soft upholstery it looks like a nice place to sit mm-hmm. after you've just gotten an interception but i think it could be like higher it could be lifted higher off the ground it could have more like royal kind of purple lifted color. higher
2: like at a bar mitzvah yes you're doing the horror
0: uh, there could be some horror horror chair the horror chair the turnover horror i i like it i like where you're going with this but just like very broadly i think like the idea of the turnover throne it like exalts the player in this way. It celebrates the player mm-hmm. and what they've just achieved. And that's the thing that I like about it. It's like with all of the dumb culture in football around like the lack of individuality and we must praise the team and just be a cog. I like how this celebrates individual achievement in a way that I think generally not been accepted in football. And so I think the throne gets us there. And I like the belt. I like the chain. Now, I want to transition to the one that makes absolutely no sense and was really like a key part of the turnover uh, object movement, which is the turnover trash can. Do you remember the turnover trash can, Stephen? Yeah. So Tennessee was known for doing it. And they got mocked correctly for there being this moment where a player got a turnover. This was last season. You go off the field, you have the turnover trash can, you dunk the ball in it, which already doesn't make sense because you don't dunk in a trash can. And the the Tennessee player dunks the ball and it just like pops out. And so the notion that after getting a turnover, you're being celebrated, that there can be still like a point of failure, I think is a huge mistake in the turnover object scene. You know, there's a connection to our conversation about Brian Mazzone. You don't want to think that like there's just still a moment where something could go wrong. It's like you've gotten the turnover. It should be over then. There should be like maybe you could fall out of the chair, I guess. Could that could that still be an issue? Leg could break on the chair. There are just so many other issues with the turnover trash can. It's like so easy to make a joke about how Tennessee is garbage. It's like so easily memeable the turnover chain, like LSU was making fun of it. Well, too much can go wrong with the turnover trash can. There's just so many points, potential points of failure. Yeah. But like anything that you do obviously can make, be made fun of. LSU was mocking Miami with LSU had like a turnover towel after they got an interception. Look, you're opening yourself up for criticism. I get it. But the trash can, it's like you're not opening yourself up to anything but criticism. And the final point on the, the semiotics here is like it just doesn't even make sense. It's like, all right, you've just got the ball and you're like throwing it away. It's like the ball is garbage. Like what is garbage? What is the message that you're conveying here? I saw one example here where Texas A&M had a trash can that had inscribed on it, y'all trash. And so then I sort of understood it. But you're not, dump- you're not dumping the other team. Well, you're, you, you've, you've stolen the other team's ball. Well, the ball belongs to you as soon as you get it. It's a shared, it's but a it shared ball. But it was their
2: ball, and you have stolen it from them. You have intercepted the ball, and now you are showing your disdain for their ball by putting it in the So it's sort of like can. throwing
0: a home run ball back once you catch it? I guess. Yeah. It's just a very confused imagery. I think it wasn't really thought through. I think we've gotten to like a better place with the throne. I, think I have, it's I have like, a question about the throne, though. Do
2: they bring the throne on the road?
0: That's a great question. I don't know. I think we're going to have to— to watch and see. That's a reason to stay tuned to t- college football this year. So in with the throne, out with the can. That is our show for today. Our producer this week is Andrew Parsons, our usual guy, Patrick Fort. Got to give him a, a mention as well. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I am Josh Levine. Remember Zombo Baby, and thanks for listening.